Welcome back to part two of Fremont Brewery's Washington Beer Talk podcast episode. Last time we left off with Sarah Nelson just getting up to go to another meeting. And subbing in for her is Matt, the head of brewing operations. Now, I'm not sure that I actually caught Matt's last name. I know he's not the Matt that's the co-founder of Fremont Brewery. That's a different Matt. A thousand internet points to anybody who finds out. I've got some super exciting news for the podcast. Washington Beer Talk is now available on Spotify. So if you have been listening on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts, then you can switch over to a proper app. Spotify is definitely my preferred place to listen. And I'm really happy to have the podcast there now. In fact, it's possible you haven't been listening to this podcast at all until now that it's on Spotify because Android never really had that great of podcast apps anyway. But now you can take Washington Beer Talk wherever you go with Spotify. Right as we left off last time, Sarah was just asking me my Cicerone's opinion of using different water recipes and regional water recipes. And I figure since somehow in the shuffle between two interviewees and uh, and her running off to her meeting and Matt coming into the room, uh, that question actually got kind of dropped. So I figure I'll give you a little bit of a, uh, I'll, I'll sort of give you my insight to that right now anyway, although I know that's not really why you're here. Basically what Sarah was asking, she was referring to how breweries will sometimes, I don't know, for lack of a better word, import a regional water style. Water is one of those main ingredients in beer, of course. Much like hops, grain, and yeast, though, there's lots and lots of ways that it can be different. Different kinds of dissolved minerals, water hardness, softness. In other words, the pH of the water can vary a lot depending on where the water came from. So a really popular thing to do for breweries these days, if you want to try to brew a Pilsner, you need to soften your water a little bit to brew a proper traditional pil like Pilsner out of Pilsen type of beer. If you want to brew uh, an IPA or a stout, you might need to harden your water a little bit uh, in order to be sort of in keeping with these traditional brewing methods. What, what I would have said to Sarah if she'd stayed in the room was that a lot of brewers these days uh, get kind of finicky about their brewing water. They like to say is Seattle is, all, is pretty famous for its really, really good water that's already really crystal clear and you can kind of do whatever you want with it. And the result of that is that you can make that Seattle water into whatever you need. You don't need to process it in any way to make it more suitable for brewing like you might need to do if you're in if you're, say, brewing with Louisiana's water, um, no offense to Louisiana, but your water tastes like toilet. And But here in Seattle, you don't really need to do that. So you can add stuff to, you can add stuff to your water here to make it whatever you need it to be. A lot of brewers would argue that changing your water too much is sort of messing with the, uh, the house flavor, like the terroir of your regional brewery, as I've noticed when I drink beer in Seattle and Washington. It, it, it tastes a certain way. You know, we make our IPAs obviously in accordance with a lot of trends and the hops that are popular up here and that kind of stuff. But if I go to Houston and I drink the same styles, their water just tastes different. And as a result, all of their beers sort of have a Houston character to them. It's not better or worse. It's a matter of personal taste. And in some cases, changing the water too much sort of seems to remove that kind of regional identity that's tied to brewers. 
changing water really is kind of, I guess, more of a historical thing. The first examples I mentioned were, uh, you know, traditional pilsners from Pilsen or a stout from Dublin or an IPA from Burton-on-Trent, a, a well-known uh, brewing town that had very particular water and a, like a very easily identifiable sort of water profile. Those are all historical examples. No one really thinks of regional water in New York or Washington or, or Houston or Louisiana. I guess what I'm trying to say is if you change the water too much, you are kind of getting rid of some of the regional uh, identity that your beer has, which if you're trying to brew a beer exactly the style and you're trying to make something uh, that tastes very exactly what, like what you think it should taste like, then change your water all you want and you can dial that in. It's it's It almost to me seems like something that's more set for home brewers or a brewery that's a specialty brewery trying to do something very specific. If you're trying to be your local brewery, then you are probably best off using your regional water. That said, um, all water, even Seattle water, needs some tweaking from time to time. There's not many brewers that I talk to who wouldn't say they would add a little bit of something or try to do, or, or maybe pre-boil a little bit to try to change the, the pH. Uh, there's lots of different processes and ways to do this. And in fact, there's... Um, um, a really good book written on the subject uh, that came out recently in a couple of year a couple of years ago called Water: A Comprehensive Guide for Brewers by John Palmer and Colin Kaminsky, and this book is just jam packed with all of this elaborate chemistry for changing the pHs, the pH of water, changing the dissolved minerals, uh, buffer. Uh, shit, I'm not a chemist. I, I I've read the book and barely understand it. I've read the book and have a passing understanding, I suppose, of of this. But if you really want to get into what you or your brewery should do for your water, then this is a book a book to read. Uh, it's just called Water. Anyway, that's kind of my opinion, but that's neither here nor there. Let's get back to the reason you actually came, which is Matt, the head of brewer operations, who pops in and tells us a little bit about breaking into the beer industry without having to really start your own brewery. He's been the head brewer here at Fremont Brewery since the beginning. And of course, at the end, I get him with the classic lightning round questions. I'm the cycling certified Cicerone, and this is Washington Beer Talk. Okay. So right now, what are we drinking? Uh, so we've got our coconut bee bomb which is a, one of the variants we do on uh, the Bee Bomb, the bourbon barrel-aged abominable. And this is the second year we've brewed this. And uh, this is probably one of the more difficult beers that we, that we make. Last year was, a, was definitely a lot of trial and error and kind of learning our way through it, for sure. One of the tricks I learned from a master Cicerone that I met, I think his name is Backer. Matt Backer, maybe? I forget. Uh, he actually is one of a few master Cicerones. So there's like three levels of Cicerone, certified, advanced, and master. And there's also the certified beer taster. I'm the second level, or I'm the the first of the three, the first of the first, like real three. Um, but this master Cicerone comes in and he says, if you, really want to, if you really want to taste a beer, first you get your tasting hands on. And I don't know why he said do this, but it gets your brain into the mindset of tasting a beer. Then you put two on the bottom and two on the side. Uh-huh. And then there's a couple different types of sniffs. You know, you do the long sniff, which gets you some stuff, gets you some flavors. You start to detect some of that 
Like obviously you can smell the chocolate. You actually can't, I can't smell the coconut on this. As soon as I taste it, I can, I can taste the coconut. And then he says, this is the weird one. You bring in, you bring it out, bring it from the side. You sniff it real quick as it zooms by. Bring it from the other side. Sniff it real quick as it comes by. And then you bring it in from the front. And then you're, and then psychologically you should be able to, he said, you know, you ask him why this works. He goes, well, sometimes you smell different things coming from the left. Sometimes you smell different things coming from the right. Makes no sense. I think it is, it, but I think it's kind of true. Cause like, you're kind of like, all right, what am I going to see? And it just gets you re-queued up to smell anew. Um, Cause smell blindness is the first thing that hits you when you're trying to sniff a beer. Yeah. That's one of the, like the, the vapor trail. There are certain, yeah. so in our sensory, <clears throat> so we're actually doing a lot of sensory training right now, mm -hmm. putting together a full on sensory team at the brewery, Ooh, nice. um, which is, uh, which has been awesome, which is something we've been talking about doing for a long time, but we're doing all this uh, tr sensory training right now. And the vapor trail is definitely something, it's a real thing. You know, that we, we do, and you can, there are certain uh, off flavors that you can smell better uh, when you're doing the vapor trail, as opposed, some are better. Yeah, some are better for the, like the, the long sniff, some are better with a short sniff, uh, some are better, you get more on a retro nasal. Um, so it kind of like, yeah, it runs the gamut. It's pretty well, this cool. Is Matt Lincoln, our director of brewing operations, talking about something as, because he knows about it. I'm just thinking that if I kept doing this vapor trail, I might hit my face and spill. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, this is not a beer you want to spill. So yeah. I think I had a, if it, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was one of these. It wasn't the coconut barrel, but it was a, a, a abominable of some kind. Um, and I bought it back in like 2014 and opened it a few years later. And a friend of mine told me that I just opened a hundred dollar bottle of beer and I was like, well, first I was like, well, shoot, <laughs> like that's kind of sucked. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, right. For you guys, like for these jabronis, my Dungeons and Dragons friends, like what's the point? Um, but I, uh, but I've never, I'm actually not much of a beer collector. I don't really spend a lot of time thinking about, um, the real, like about these fancy beers, but I bet you do. So what are, what are some of your, I just want to get you rolling here. Uh, like what are some of the differences between a really fancy beer like this, a bear, a, like a barrel aged wax on top and then every sort of the everyday every man's beer. Um, Other than obviously this is like a barley wine or like a, sure. you know, an imperial stout or whatever this real style is. You know, these, these kind of beers are really high in alcohol. I mean, there's just so much more work involved in making a beer like this. There's, and it's, you know, it's more costly. There's, it requires a lot more, we, we, a lot more raw ingredients. I mean, this is like a 14% beer. We actually do uh, a double mash in the brew house. So we'll, we'll, to fill the kettle, we'll do two different, two mashes uh, right after, one after the other. And then there's a longer boiling time. So it ties up more brew house capacity um, and you know just these also require a lot of time for aging I mean not only is it just raw materials and everything and the extra brewing time extra brewing labor but you know these beers will age uh, here at the brewery for you know for a year uh, two years sometimes for these barrels because these Something that we started doing a few years ago that we thought gave a little more complexity for all the barrel-aged beers was, you know, using a portion of old barrel of like, uh, you know, really aged barrels, like beer that had been in barrel for like two years, 18 months, whatever, and then blending that with beer that had been sitting in barrel for about 
for about nine to twelve months. Um, so you know some of the you know some of the components in here have been sitting around the brewery for a couple of years, and um, yeah, I mean it's and then as far as so you, there's that time commitment. There's the extra added cost. I mean you've got the you know Talk about the coconut. yeah, and then for this one in particular, I mean this one we used about we used. Uh, about a pound of coconut per gallon of finished beer. So it was, um, and last year, this, like I mentioned, there was a lot of trial and error on this one in particular. And even this year, we, we thought we had a really good plan going forward, and then, but we still had to make some changes and keep on turning the beer around, essentially, on top of the coconut. Um, and... Uh, yeah, just a lot of a lot of work, a lot of work, a lot of effort, um, and then a lot of a lot of raw ingredients. A pound of coconut per gallon is like a lot. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. three thousand pounds. Yeah, it's like over three thousand pounds went into this beer. And <laughs> it's for like just, for not took, yeah for of dried coconut. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not imagining like shaving a coconut in, but that's not that's not a pound of that. That's a pound of dried coconut. That's crazy for. What winds up being a fairly not not subtle flavor, but mm -hmm. subdued flavor, I guess. Like mm. it's in there, but it's not like a, it's I don't not, know. It's I not think, pounding with it. I think you definitely. I think there's definitely quite a bit of coconut. I think you should if you had it next to the regular bee bomb. It's kind yeah. of night and day. I, I guess that's probably true. To me, um, it smells like because to me, I still get a lot of like. You know, like Mounds Bar, Mounds Bar, yeah. like chocolate, coconut character. But in the meat for the, I really get it in the finish, like where it's just like a mm -hmm. mouthful of coconut. Yeah, totally. One of the things that people like to do with these, with these fancy aged beers, the barrel aged beers, the ones they've been put that you guys have been putting out once a year. You know, this is all the vertical flight is a thing that's been around. Everyone mm -hmm. does these. Um, and like where you're trying the same beer from five different years or whatever to taste the difference. And that has always sort of struck me as a weird thing to do. Like, I get it, because I, I understand, like, w like, with wine especially, it's a thing that you do. Uh, but with y'all doing a vertical flight, you were tasting for the differences in what, it, like, what an, a year or two or three or four of years in the bottle will do to a beer while it's waiting there. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's tons that happen in the course of that aging process. Uh, like the hoppy, hoppy flavors kind of get more subdued and all kinds of other, like, whatever, you know, vestiges of yeast, like, is still going on there. They're doing all kinds of things inside. That matters more for sour beers, I guess, than yours. But, uh, um, but you like to imagine you're tasting the difference years make. Mm -hmm. But really what you're tasting is the difference that, like, of the brewery has done, like how they've brewed differently over the five last five years. Because even if you wanted to brew the same beer a second time mm -hmm. a year later, you're gonna have, especially the way Fremont Brewery is growing, you've got a new brew house by then, or mm -hmm. you've got uh, you know oh, yeah. brand new furniture, all new barrels. Definitely like, a variation, definitely year to year variation for sure. Yeah, there are a lot of variables. There so are so many. There's too many. So That's exactly right. the problem. Yeah. Um, anyway, we have a control group. Yeah. Um, Okay, well let's let's chat about you for a little bit. So you just popped sure. in. We didn't we barely did an introduction. Um, yeah, let's start with your history here at Fremont. You're the head of brewing operations. Mm -hmm. um, what all does that mean? How'd you get here? <clears throat> yeah, I started off. Uh, so I was the original head brewer, and uh, I was like employee number three, I think. Mm. Um, the owner, uh, or Matt, uh, Sarah, the other Matt, Sarah, the other Matt. Sarah. 
Sarah's husband, uh, founder, uh, founder owner, he uh, <clears throat> he had thrown out his back, so he ended up having to hire somebody to help him brew. Uh, and then I came on shortly afterwards uh, as a, as the head brewer. I think they brewed a couple trial batches, but this was like 2009, and uh, yeah, the you know we this was also right after the recession, so there was like. You know, and I don't think uh, I don't think a production brewery had opened up in Seattle in maybe five or six years, something yeah. like that. So it's been a long time, and you know, you think about how much things have changed in the last ten years in the industry. You know, let alone Seattle, but the industry itself has just changed dramatically. Anyway, so I uh, <clears throat> came on board then, and yeah, we've grown quite a bit in the last almost ten years. It's been crazy, like, and then so. A few years ago, my role kind of changed as we started to get bigger. So now I kind of oversee, I oversee packaging, packaging, brewing, quality, uh, warehouse, um, kind of anything that falls in the under the umbrella of production. Mm-hmm. And then I also oversee facilities, maintenance, and everything. So okay, and I still do some little bullshit things here and there that. You know that I probably shouldn't be doing, but I've been doing for like eight or nine years. Right, in terms of like, <laughs> but for for brewing beer. So you started off as a head brewer, but yeah. now you're the facility guy. You don't brew much beer. You're not getting in there or doing anything like that. That's all for Unfor- shift brewers now. Yeah, unfortunately, no. I, I haven't. I haven't brewed in a few years. I mean, I, I stay involved. I was. Uh, I'm always heavily involved in all of the commissioning of our new equipment. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of like project guy too. Like yeah. whenever we. You know, we just put in a new canning line this year, so I oversaw that project. And uh, um, yeah, I don't get my hands as dirty as I used to, which kind of sucks. But I do go down the floor sometimes, do a little bit of cellaring every now and again. There you go. And uh, we are getting a pilot system uh, that was coming in here this year, this month. Um, a little three and a half barrel system that'll okay. be over here. Yeah. Uh, which is something that we've been talking about talking about doing for years, just to really focus a lot of hard R and D on raw materials, uh, raw ingredients, um, and developing recipes and everything. So that is something I really hope to start brewing on again. You know, that's that's going to be really fun. Okay, so you guys have your big brew house here. Your yeah. what, was it eighty, 80 so barrel? Eighty barrel, yeah. And then you've got your new. You're going to get your new pilot one. Mm-hmm. What's what's brewing at the old place then? So we've still got the thirty barrel system over there, which okay. is frankly just too big. Um, it's too big for a pilot too system. Big. Oh, like, yeah. yeah, I mean we brew like a we usually brew fifteen barrel batches over mm. there, and that'll feed that feeds our tasting room, like one off beers for our tasting room. So we do a lot of R and D over there, uh, but those batches are just too large. Um, it's to really do what we want to do, get crazy, and then just you know focusing purely on single ingredients and how they're affecting beers mm-hmm. and you know trialing out new hops and stuff in your new role here do you manage anything that goes back back on at the old place mm-hmm. yeah yep we definitely uh, uh we actually this year we just hired a person to run our uh our mixed fermentation program and then he's also part of his job is just managing the brewing over at the other brewery as well so which has actually been really nice mm-hmm. so that kind of uh you know things get big and nebulous and it's nice to have someone over there that uh really knows their stuff and is easy to work with and can kind of hold down the fort over there yeah. so we actually have two full-time brewers over there wow you just mentioned the mixed fermentation project which mm-hmm. i hadn't known 
what was going, what, what, I didn't know you were doing anything like that. So that's like, are you making, you're making sour beers, mm-hmm. bread beers, all that crazy yeah, stuff over sour there? sour beers, bread beers. We've got a few, we've got three fooders over there, a bunch yeah. of wine barrels. So oh, I just learned about the fooders while reading uh, your uh, urinal newsletter uh, oh, just nice. now that one yeah. of them uh, recently cracked and is now back in production. Uh, fig- this- or there's a brick, there's a, 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 a burner batch in there to make sure it's a viable <laughs> vessel. Yeah, that was one that we picked up that had, yeah, it was kind of in really poor shape. We got it for free. Uh, we just had to spend a lot of time uh, rehabilitating it back into life, so we think we think we did it. And the, so far, the beer coming, the beer is tasting good coming out of there. How did you get it for free? Uh, from another local brewery, they were they basically had it sent to them. Um, they couldn't. It was it was frankly it was a piece of shit when they got it. Mm. It wasn't what they had originally paid for. Oh no! And the the company they bought it from, they were like, really, you know, they to make amends, they just sent them a brand new one. Oh, and uh, a new fooder, and not a brand new one, uh, a used fooder, but new to them. Yeah. But they didn't have the time, or the they didn't have the time to get it back into uh, you know usable a usable state. Mm-hmm. So uh, we did, and you know, working on it, you know, a few hours here and there, and yeah, we think we got it, so it works. That's so funny. What brewery was it that gave it to you? Uh, Floodland, which Floodland. is right up the street from us. Um, so I think we're actually going to do, for the first first real batch of beer that goes in there, we'll do a little collaboration with those guys. Why don't I know about Floodland? Uh, really small. Okay. Uh, they, they don't actually have a brew house. Um, we've made work for them. They do all barrel fermentation. So oh. they're about two blocks north of us. They are subscri- subscription only. Um, oh, okay. One of the uh, former, one of the founders of Holy Mountain. He kind of peeled off and to do oh, his own okay. thing. So he's right up the street. Right that the does street that reeks of Holy Mountain. That, <laughs> that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Cool. Uh, we got off on a tangent though. That I that that's not why you're sitting here. Uh, we're, you were talking about you know, so we're talking about your history and all the reason that. Uh, um, okay. Okay. Here's the question I really wanted to ask. So you've been at Fremont since the beginning. You start off as our head brewer. Now you're their facility manager. You're doing all this crazy stuff. What, like, I am constantly watching these, like, I know whatever Facebook page I'm in or Instagram account I'm following, I'm always seeing comments from other brewers, you know, shift brewers or sellermen or whoever who is sort of working on their, like, they're trying to break into the brewing world because they love beer and they know so much. Um, but then at the end, end of the day, there's not really that many jobs out there for, you know, for facility managers or for even head brewers mm-hmm. or even shift brewers or sellermen, if you're looking at it, what kind of, what, as, as a person who sort of, who got in early and has been just riding, you know, just riding high, having a great time, I don't know, maybe what's a message you might give to some other brewers or some other people who want to start out in the brewing industry? Um, That's a real tough question to put you right on the spot with. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'll just... What I did, and I think which worked out pretty well, I mean, uh, I really wanted to really seriously shift careers, so I went through the American Brewers Guild program, and uh, this was after like being really into home brewing for years, and uh, my background is actually culinary arts, so went to culinary school and then got tired of working in kitchens and decided I wanted to really <laughs> focus on brewing, and... Um, you know, that's, uh, and I, that worked out really well for me. And I also, I think that means a lot when you're looking at, a, uh, you know, looking to hire somebody too. If someone is really dedicated and 
really passionate about it and really serious and wants to become a brewing professional. You know, having getting some formal education in brewing to really understand the theory uh, behind everything that then you can go and apply all that knowledge that you've gained to brewing. I think it's a really is uh, is, is a great way to get into the industry. Uh, the plus, the nice thing about the American Brewers Guild, not that I'm you're plugging American Brewers Guild, but one of the nice aspects of their program is they also have an apprenticeship aspect to it where, you know, at the end of their program, you go and work in a brewery for four or five months, or four or five weeks, excuse me. And so you can really get some hands-on feel for it. Because, I don't know, I think there's like, like cooking, I think there's a lot of, you know, glamour associated with brewing. And at the end of the day, you're just cleaning shit half the time. 75% of the time. Glorified janitor. You're a glorified <laughs> janitor, you know, and, you know, especially, and you're working in a beer factory. Let's not, you yeah. know, it's not, it's, it's like, not really, it. yeah, it's, it's not sugarcoat, it's a beer factory, you know. Now, granted, we're making beer, we're not making shampoo or something, which would probably be soul-sucking. Yeah. Uh, so, you can really be proud of what you're doing, and you can really be passionate about it, which I think is, which, you know, which I think we see every day, just people that, you know, people just want to be here and want to work here, but because they're making something that they can be really, really passionate about. But um, yeah, I think that's probably one of the, that I would say would be one of the better routes just to get some kind of formal education. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if someone comes, has a resume, that on their resume, you know, that kind of tells me that they're pretty serious. You know, mm -hmm. they really want to do this uh, because that's always something that we look for people that want to be professionals in the industry and continue with their knowledge and get better at what they do and you know really want to be uh, a professional brewer. Mm -hmm. That is it's kind of funny because a lot of the brewers that I know they al almost every like brewery founder they don't really start off with that Ed, you know that educational background. They mm -hmm. start off with the homebrewing background. Yeah, the they, brewery founders. Yeah. yeah, and then they hire people that have the uh, have yeah, some, they, yeah uh, <laughs> inevitably you have to because yeah uh, yeah because homebrewing and you know there's there are a lot of similarities but there's a lot of differences too because like you know brewing on a much scaled up version and you know, yeah. it just it has its own set of challenges you know that are infinitely greater than brewing on a homebrew scale i would hazard to say that they're the only thing that brewing on a real owning a brewery running a brewery founding a brewery brewing on any kind of scale and homebrewing have in common is that the end result is beer like they're they're completely different like i can i can homebrew all i want it takes me four hours i got five gallons of beer that five gallons of beer takes me a month to drink you know like you know whereas as soon as you try to open a brewery literally everything changes something i've heard people say is if you are a homebrewer and you want to open a brewery don't what you really want to do is go work at a brewery and be their brewer and uh and because that's just like because you don't get to brew beer once you open a brewery anymore. Pretty much, no. Uh, I mean, because you're too busy running a business. I mean, yeah. like, very rarely do the do the owners brew. Every now and again they do, you mm. know, or will do it just to, you know, if they can. Yeah, um, but, but just for fun. Like, yeah, at that just, point, yeah. Because like, like, they're, they're going to fuck up the beer they're, yeah. that y'all are trying to make. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what does the other Matt do these days now that, uh, now that you're the head of operations here and he's uh, doing whatever and... Yeah, yeah. God, he does all kinds of shit. I mean, he's basically, you know, he's kind of, he has the vision for the whole thing, you know. He, and he just still does majority of the recipe development. You oh. know, he and I will work on things together and then we'll bring in other members of the crew. But a lot of the creative stuff comes from him. Um, so he's still heavily involved in all that. Um, and then, yeah, he's just making sure that 
everything's running smooth, man. There's like a lot of, as we've grown and, and we've got like 80 people that work here now, um, you know, I think, you know, the primary, his primary role is probably like, you know, being the vision guy and making sure that things are running the way that he wants, that he sees them and wants them to go. And, uh, I mean, so far that's been working out pretty damn well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and essentially, you know, managing all the managers and yeah, still pretty, Fair pretty enough. damn, pretty damn busy job. You're obviously like a hotshot brewer. You drink a lot of beer. You do a lot of stuff. I don't know if I'd call myself a hotshot brewer, but I think I think you are. I think you should establish yourself. I think you should work on your celebrity brewer personality a little bit. Um, See, that's the thing about brewers. Everyone's pretty damn humble. And yeah, like, you know, well, we're just making beer. The brewer, you know, the, the brewers always the humble ones, and it's always the people like me who are running around going like, "How many brewers can I name drop?" But, uh, so I will fully acknowledge me myself as the problem. But uh, I blame the beer collectors. Uh, I say the beer collectors are a bigger problem in terms of toxicity uh, in the <laughs> beer environment. Uh, but no, that was not a fun question I want to ask. The question I want to ask is, what are the three most inspirational breweries that you that you have, what would you list as your three most inspirational breweries? Um, let's see. Probably number one would always be Sierra Nevada. That's yeah. the one that I always come back to. Um, one of the first beers I started drinking uh, as a kid as like an underage kid, you yeah. know, like 17, 18 year old, you know, delving into craft, or I guess tiptoeing into craft brewing. Um, but that was always, and that was always the benchmark, you know, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, um, that beer. And it's still to this day, that beer is still a great beer. And uh, it's not just the beer that they make there. I think part of it is their, their overall company culture and their whole mentality of, you know, remaining independent and, the quality that goes in everything that they do, that being, you know, uh, the quality aspect, uh, and then their focus on sustainability and um, just being, you know, just being a really good kind of role model brewery, you know. When I was a kid, same kind of story, drinking Sierra Nevada for the first, you know, that was my first beer ever because that's what my dad would drink. Um, I had never had beer before. I wasn't much of a drinker. And I took a sip of Sierra Nevada, you know, snuck a sip, and I, w I did not like it. I hated it. I was like, this is horrible. Why does anyone drink beer? This is ridiculous. <laughs> and what's so funny is now I've, it's been many years, and I've drank a lot of beer, and I've definitely had beer that's way, way hoppier than Sierra, Sierra Nevada Pale, yeah. and, uh, you know, and way worse and way better, and... I have still never given Sierra Nevada a second try. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh man, see, I love <laughs> they're pale, man. I think it's great. I used to. I'll if it's on draft and nothing else. I mean, I won't always get it if it's on draft or something. But if there's nothing else that I'm like, oh, that's always the go-to. You know, yeah. that's always gonna be a solid go-to. I'm gonna go pick up a six-pack on my way home. Yeah, it's you just, should, man. It's stupid that I haven't had any. Like, I, uh, I got and, and I remember the drinking, drinking that for the first time, being like, oh man, that's so so bitter and so hoppy you know? yeah. I was coming from my you know drinking I don't know Bud Light or something yeah and, or totally Milwaukee's best <laughs> the beast oh my god okay so uh, let's see so that's one so that's another one would probably be Founders um, since I'm from Michigan that was my Founders was my um, you know that, that was my local brewery and back when they were doing like 2,000 barrels a year and and it was totally sleepy. 
no one knew him outside of Grand Rapids, basically, but we'd go down in their tasting room and drink all the time. And, um, and just some of the, you know, their Scotch Ale, they did the Dirty Bastard. It was, you know, kind of blew our minds when we were, you know, I don't know, 20, 21, something like that. And, and they've always, and they became good friends too. So I know a lot of people that still work there and, um, it's always, it was always the place where my family would go and hang out. We'd hang out with other fr friends and families, hang out in their tasting room. Um, so apart from all that, I still think they make really awesome beer too. And they're really, really good people. Um, and that was just something that was really formative for me as far as, you know, some of the first craft beer that I really got into drinking and founders was definitely way up there. Um, and it blows my mind to think now that they're going to do like, I don't know, half a million barrels this year or something ridiculous, which is totally crazy. And they still have some of the same people that have been working there when I was like drinking there. I don't know. God, it was like 15 years ago, something like that. It was really crazy. We're all at a, we're at, they put on a beer festival in Spain uh, which they invited us to, and it was the first beer international beer festival Fremont's done. And so myself and one of our events guys, David, we went over, the two of us went over there for this beer festival, and we're hanging out in Madrid with these guys that I've known for like 15 years, 15 plus years that are still working at Founders. Still doing the same thing. When it went back from when it was like 2,000 barrels, and now it's 300,000 barrels. And we were just kind of like, how the fuck did we get here? <laughs> you know, this is crazy. <laughs> oh, man, I love that story. That's some good stuff. Yeah, it was awesome. It was really cool. And then uh, probably the third one, uh, probably Cantillon. That'd be... Cantillon? Yeah. That's like, you know, just because they are, I mean... Just a legendary brewery. Um, the, some of the first sour beers I ever really got into was Cantillon. And uh, that was definitely a real like pilgrimage going to the brewery there. And um, yeah, just the amount of tradition and history that goes into that place. And like, just the, you know, nobody, nobody makes beer quite like that. So, um, so, those are so. I've got a couple of questions that are going to feed off of that. Uh, off of that one question there. A lot of people say Sierra Nevada. Okay, so let's see. You mentioned Sierra Nevada and um, Cantillon, and those are two common answers. Mm -hmm. I think I'll, I'll, I ask that question a lot of brewers, and I get a similar answer. Um, let's see, Cantillon. I, I have barely any experience with. So mm -hmm. I got what you mentioned this pilgrimage over to Belgium to get Cantillon. I I can put this shit on my list. I got to go do that. Um, that is kind of funny. Do you think that anybody, any new breweries, you know, any breweries made in the last 10 years mm -hmm. are ever going to make anyone's list of most inspirational breweries? Because those are all, you know, even founders, you know, obviously biggest brewery, huge brewery now. Like, that's yeah. what you're talking about. My, my only knowledge of them is being a huge brewery. Yeah. You know, I'm a younger uh, drinker. I imagine. I mean, yeah. everyone was little at one point. I guess it also depends on, I guess it probably depends on your age, you know, the generation you came up with, uh, generation of brewers, you know. Um, I, yeah, undoubtedly, I'm sure there are quite a few that are around now that will become uh, role models like that. Um, I mean, another one I think is another huge brewery is like is New Belgium, and I think um, now, granted, they kind of fall in that same that same arena, but 
for them, for I admire them. Their company and corporate culture is pretty outstanding, and I don't know how they really do it, to be honest. Like everyone I've ever met from that place is like so great, so happy to do what they're so happy doing what they're doing, and just really great people, um, which is pretty. And I've never heard any employee say anything bad about New Belgium. Yeah, which is pretty pretty amazing. Mm. So. But I, I mean, I guess there's got to be some breweries around now. I mean, um, yeah, for sure. There is one more question I got to ask. I know you're coming down to the wire, so let's mm-hmm. figure this out in the last 30 seconds. Sure. So, of those three breweries you mentioned, Sierra Nevada, uh, Founders, and Cantillon, which one did you marry? Which one did you kill? Which one did you bang? Uh, probably marry Sierra. Why? No, it's uh, it's not a hundred percent. More of a gut feeling. They're your oldest love. Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, probably bang Cantillon and maybe kill Founders. <laughs> okay, sorry, Founders. I don't know. It's hard to say. I don't know. It's That's hard a tough to one. Say. That's a tough one. I love putting people on the spot with that one because I'm going to kill one of your most inspirational breweries. Um, all right. What are, my final question is: What are we going to? Did we finish this bee bomb? What are we going to do with that? Yeah. If you want to, if you want to drink some more of it, go for it, man. I think I might. Right on. Well, Matt, thank right you so much. Yeah, you're pleasure. welcome, man. Yeah. You're um, welcome. I will see you around. Right on. Sounds Let's good. grab a beer. Yeah. Thank you so much, Matt. It was a real pleasure getting to hang around with you and drink some of those amazing Fremont beers. I'll be back before I know it. That was part two of Fremont Brewery. If you want to hear Sarah Nelson's interview, go back to part one. This was Fremont Brewery. If you want into their beer, you can find their tap room right off of the Burt Gilman guests today were sarah nelson and matt something said earlier thousand internet points to whoever can find me that guy's last name today this week's podcast was recorded and edited by me the cycling certified cicerone and music by lee roosevelt go find the podcast now on spotify and i can officially say this wherever you get your podcasts Next week, we'll be going back to some Texas breweries where we have Under the Radar and Spindle Tap. Under the Radar is a small Texas brewery with a big beer garden and lots of dogs. And Spindle Tap is a, an up-and-coming brewery with a bit of a cult following in Houston. Known for being one of the first breweries to brew a proper hazy IPA. And with them, we really get into it. You can also go to cyclingcicerone.com for full blog posts and photos. 